Hello and welcome to Fidelity Connects, a Fidelity Investments Canada podcast, connecting you to the world of investing and helping you stay ahead. Today we check in with portfolio manager Eileen Dibb as she unpacks what opportunities she's seeing in the Asia Pacific region as business activity across China's service sector continues to expand, but ever so slightly. Eileen highlights opportunities within Asian and emerging Asia markets, noting big movements in terms of consumerism, tourism, and commodities. The pace has slowed down in the last couple of years, but consumer spending has gone up gradually, especially in Singapore. Eileen says the Asia Star Fund is a flexible investment vehicle. She invests in Australia, New Zealand, and India, among other Asian countries. And she invests in opportunities happening regionally and globally. In terms of themes she's focusing on, include AI, labor productivity, and reshoring and semiconductors in Asia. This podcast was recorded on November 3rd, 2023. It's lovely to see you again. How are you, Eileen? I think you might be a bit jet-lagged, actually, just back from Asia. I am good, Pamela. Today, I'm feeling much better than the past few days. (laughs) How was your trip? It was great. I went to both Tokyo and Hong Kong last week, and it was really nice to spend a week there talking to people and and seeing what was going on in the region. Eileen, um, it's, you know, it's been a while since we saw Chinese equities, for instance, massively spike up towards the end of last year. Um, and then and then we saw a decisive drop as well. When you're in the region, it's, it's all sort of a question of this reopening. Where are we on the discussion of reopening? What did, what did it look like? What's right reopening look like at this point? Where are they? I think a lot of reopening has to go with tourism, with travel, um, having in many respects, put COVID behind us, not in every, not in every case, but, um, you know, people really getting out and moving and planes were full, restaurants were reasonably full and everywhere I went, it was much, had a, had a nice, lively sense to it. So, so it was nice to see. That's great to see. Is it, is it different from, you know, I don't know, even sort of spring or just even a few months ago, how different would you say it is? I, I think it's a, it is different. I think when I was in the region a few months ago, there was not quite as much tourism, um, at least where I was. I was in Singapore at that point, and um, Sing- Singapore had relatively already um, come back, but I was also in Thailand, and, and Thailand really wasn't quite seeing the tourism that um, one expects. So I, I think this trip, it, it was it was good. We'll speak broadly about different parts of Asia and, and what you cover and how you invest in the region. But actually, just because you mentioned Singapore, I wonder if we can maybe begin with ASEAN and, and some of the countries there. Is it is it a place that you're looking for opportunities or or in a sense of they've sort of already seen the reopening? Where Where is that momentum? I think ASEAN and emerging Asia in general is a great place to look for opportunities um, ASEAN does include Singapore, which is obviously not considered an emerging market. But um, of the five ASEAN countries, uh, there really seems to be good movement in terms of consumer, um, in terms of tourism, in terms of commodities. There are many levers there to pull. Uh, manufacturing is generally about 20% of any of these five economies. 
And that all seems to be returning. So uh, I think ASEAN is actually in a pretty good place right now. Do the, the ASEAN countries, I mean, there was, there was one big narrative over the course of the last, I don't know, year, longer than a year, um, that it was sort of, it was the story that it was in Asia, there was cheaper manufacturing opportunities, as you just mentioned there, um, but not China. Is that, what, is that the main narrative still? What, what other ones go within that? Uh, I, I'm not sure it's, it's, um, exactly the main narrative. There obviously has been, um, some diversification of manufacturing in the region. Uh, you see foreign flows into the regions as, um, companies look to put investment there. And I think that's continuing. I think there are cheap sources of labor, um, within the region and, um, good infrastructure in several of the economies. And so multinationals are really looking for that, um, those few things that make a place, a, a country or a location, um, excellent for manufacturing. So that definitely plays into it. Um, tourism obviously is a, another aspect. Mm. Um, and you can see that across the region picking back up again. One um, overused discussion, but I wonder if it's still powerful in terms of a theme across more emerging markets or the discussion of emerging markets was always sort of the, the rising middle class. I'm sure that still fits with that. The, the countries are getting richer and therefore for consumers are as well. To bring us up to date on sort of where that stands for ASEAN countries. ASEAN over the last few decades has, has really grown in terms of GDP per capita. A country like Singapore is obviously at the high end, and it has also grown, but not from such a low base. But several of the other countries as well, actually the whole region, has seen relatively good GDP per capita growth. And I think that could continue um, as the, the it continues to develop. Um, and, and depending on which country it is, some are, are more middle economies, um, the pace has slowed in the past few years just because of COVID. Um, but there is the opportunity for that to continue to go forward. So a, a nice place to look for that. That's interesting. Within Asia Star, it's, um, you can, you can go across. I mean, I remember you've told us in the past, it, you know, if it was a better opportunity for China, you could go there. If it was a better opportunity for India, you could go there and some of these other countries as well. T tell us about the fund itself and I guess just broadly what you can do with it at this moment. Asia Star is this wonderfully flexible investment vehicle. Um, I invest all across Asia, everywhere from Japan to India, Australia, New Zealand, the emerging markets. and it is meant to invest in some of the best themes in the region. I look for companies that have great fundamentals, but that also play into some of the things that are happening regionally and globally. And I can do that with my Fidelity analyst team, um, looking for opportunities wherever they are. And we really have no, no parameters. I mean, we have risk parameters and things like that. Um, but there's really nowhere we can't go. So, so it's really nice. So when you say global themes, like take, take us, so AI is a theme that we talk about in every interview, actually, <laughs> I think. Um, but how does that ultimately allow you to do that? What is that the type of global theme you're talking about? What, what else? Um, AI is a great theme. Obviously, there's a lot of things happening, um, in terms of, you know, the future of labor productivity. 
And, um, you know, you can look at that as making the whole pie bigger in the economy. So you take um, everything that's happening and, and you could say maybe it, it takes labor out in some places, but you can also look at it as, as increasing productivity and making the whole pie bigger. So therefore having more labor overall in the general economy. Um, and yes, and this is a great place to look for that. We have companies that do, um, for example, um, engineers to help with AI rollouts at companies or different ways to, to play that. And there are a lot of other things as well, um, that we're looking at that are global in scope, healthcare, mm-hmm. um, health, okay. healthcare and pharmaceuticals, contract manufacturing organizations that, um, help biotechs to manufacture their drugs. Um, lots, lots of different global themes that we play in the, in the Asia Star and, and Japan fund. Okay. Yeah. And let's talk about Japan. Just one second. Is, um, I mean, one of the big things that, that U.S. policy and policy around the world has, has looked at is obviously reshoring of semiconductors. So that's, that's the story when you're, when you're sitting in North America or you're sitting in some other country. But what does sort of the semi story mean in Asia to, to your type of investments? I like to think of semiconductors as a longer term structural story. Um, I think that over time you can have these cycles. You're going to have memory up. You're going to have memory down. You got enough logic. You know, there's, there's all different ways to play semis across the region, across the globe. Um, and I, I generally like to invest in, in those companies that have things that will be long term. So, um, in terms of AI, there's chips, there's ASICs or ASICs. I'm not sure if it's a long A or a short A. Um, <laughs> you know, there, sure there's, I know what you mean. It, <laughs> yeah, one's a sneaker and one's a chip, um, chip set, right? So, um, you know, you kind of have the two. We like maybe the sneakers too. Yeah. Anyway, so, you know, there's there's a lot with semiconductors that you can do. There's all these new tech applications come in. And, um, you know, we saw supply constraints during COVID where you couldn't get the right semiconductors for your car or, you know, there, there was a lot of different things. And that's all freed up. So if you have a driver like AI um, and the chips that go into making that happen, then that keeps semiconductors as a long-term structural story. And within the two funds, um, we can invest in that in a lot of different ways. So it's a nice place to be longer term. When you look at the global commodity story, what, what does it mean for, well, various parts of the world, but specifically what you're looking at? Um, Australia, for instance, obviously is a huge commodity producer, but the global story for commodities uh, potential. How do you look at it? What do you think? Are they going up? Is that is that material for some of the countries and and their economies? It's definitely material. I hate to call commodities in the longer term because who knows? Um, yeah. There are a lot of different things around the world that can make commodities go up or down. Obviously, energy is one of those um, places that global politics has a huge um, you know impact on. Um, within the countries that I invested in, in Asia Star, there's everything from steel to iron ore to natural gas. Um, and, and again, it's, it's about looking at the long term, seeing where our analysts think things are going to go and then investing in those companies that can capitalize on those trends in the best way. Um, so within Australia, it might be iron ore, or coking coal stocks. Um, it really, 
really depends on the, on the long-term trend. So dying to question, ask you questions about Japan. So let's spend a little bit of time if, it, if it's all right. Okay. Tell us why the BOJ's actions are so, I mean, they're so interesting. You, you lived in Japan for a number of years. In fact, at a time when J- Japan and the equities were, were at their peak, and it was before the so-called lost decade, which went on a little longer than that. What's so different about investing in Japan right now? I guess initially from the inflation and the interest rate story first. So I think I just top ticked it. I think I ended and I think I entered the Japan world right at the top. Um, and so I I have definitely endured some some lost decades. Um, but the past 10 years since Abenomics came in, you know, we've had a focus on 2% inflation. And that was kind of a line in the sand for Japan. Recently, we have actually seen above 2% inflation. And that allows J- Japan to be a little less accommodative monetarily than they have been. So if you think about rates keeping inflation in check and the economy in check, One of the things that happened back in 89-90 that took the Japanese bubble away was that they hiked rates. And that kind of put everything at a stop. There were other things that happened too back then. Um, But really, hiking rates is about slowing the economy. So in Japan, where the economy was in deflation for so long, the fact that it has inflation and companies feel empowered to raise prices is a big deal. Um, it's hard to make money in a, in a truly deflationary environment where assets and your product prices are just coming down all the time. So the BOJ and policy is really going to, I think, focus on growth and how much growth there is in the Japanese economy, whether it needs to actually be slowed. Um, it's going to focus on currency and, and interest rates will flow from that. You know, and, and currency really correlates to interest rates with you and the gap between U.S. rates and Japanese rates. So depending on where the Japanese government wants to see the currency over time, whether weaker, they think weaker is better. Um, we're at about 150 into the dollar, the U.S. dollar right now. Um, depending on where the government wants to see that, that will control their policy. And the fact that they're talking about changing yield curve control, um, the fact that they're talk a bit, talking about doing away with zero interest and negative interest rate policy, um, that's a big deal. The fact, the fact that we've seen rates actually rise in Japan for the first time in a very long time. Um, it's a, it's a big years. deal for like the global investor too. I mean, this is, this is sort of the story that, that makes the headlines is what does it mean if Japanese investors no longer need to go outside their own country to catch a bit of yield? If they can bring that home, do it at home, you know, does it take investors out of the rest of the global system, including the U.S., but other places as well? Um, but what does it mean for investing in Japan, which is what you're doing? What, where, where's, the, what's the beneficiary? So obviously one of the core beneficiaries will be Japanese financials. Um, Japanese banks and life insurer and insurers in general have been acting in an environment where every year uh, their maybe their bond investments were marked down or they weren't able to grow loans um, just because the economy wasn't going very fast. And so if they can see a, a good economy, um, 
a little bit of inflation is good for the economy. You don't want hyperinflation, but 2%, most economies have that and can tolerate that over time. That growth, along with rising rates that help their, their loan book, um, should be positive for Japanese financials. Um, so one of the places that we have been overweight in both Asia Star and the Japan Fund has been Japanese financials in general. So that's one place that I, I'm looking at very closely. That's fascinating. And, and when you, when you look across some of the other stories that you guys are all part of Abenomics, Shinzo Abe's, um, reforms that he brought in, just sort of bring us up to date, as you say, almost a decade, well, a decade later. I don't know the exact dates, but yeah. this far into it, where are they really hitting the road? Where, where are you seeing this where it just makes investors want to flood in? even more so to Japan because of changing policy. Uh, so it's almost exactly a decade. So I think the policy, I think I'll be guessing. Good. Yeah, no, it, I think it was October of 2013 uh, when Abe came to power. And it, so in the past decade, the Japanese government and Japanese corporations have really been changing. So it's a story of corporate governance it's a story of changing mindsets of corporations. So many, many, many corporations have, for example, um, improved their margins over time. I think when I was looking at this in 2013, the ROE of the Japanese market was like 3%. It was very low. Um, and now I think it's at about 9%. So there has been a huge shift in profitability over the past decade. Japanese corporations have changed their focus. You get a, a, a really big um, boost from more efficient balance sheets in the market. Uh, Japanese companies have started to borrow. They have utilized their cash better. They pay a lot more out in, in dividend. Their payout ratios have improved across the on average across the board substantially. And, and, you know, you really have a culture of Japanese companies that are really out there trying to change, looking to change and do things in a good way. So I, I look at Japan right now as sort of a, a, it's, it's not the highest growth economy out there. There's certainly higher growth, but it's also a relatively low risk economy. So really a, a nice place to be with sort of moderate growth. Um, but relatively low risk to any investment that we put on there. So a nice place to be. So there's so many different amazing pieces of the story, it, it seems to me, and, and, and you'll you'll take us through this. But there's also, which I think you're kind of mentioning there, the low risk is if investors feel that they're less inclined to be invested in China right now, you'll hear people say Japan's a great way to play Asia that is not necessarily China. I mean, to, to what extent is that useful to you or not? Uh, just to speak to that a bit. I think Japan has been a, a nice place to be for, for quite a long time. Okay. So I, ha I have found that Japan has been making these changes. It is improving um, on the corporate sector after the last two decades, let's call it. And so, um, you know, wherever we invest in Asia, I think I'm always looking for places that have things that are really 
all aligned, right? We, I want everything, everything that I can possibly have aligned to be aligned. Um, and so that is right now, I, I think Japan looks really interesting. Fascinating. So, um, what about going back to sort of ASEAN a little bit, but I'm just kind of curious of other countries with other opportunities. I mentioned commodities briefly mentioned Australia is, is Australia, you know, underweight, overweight? How, how, how does Australia fit in? It's a possibility within your universe. Yes. So Australia is one of the larger companies in the Asia star universe or sorry, large, larger countries in the Asia star universe. I am a little underweight Australia. There have been rising rates and the mortgage cycle in Australia is such that from the middle of this year, mortgages in Australia for the average consumer have increased in, in absolute amounts substantially. So your mortgage might have become twice as expensive as it was three months ago, um, just because they've rolled over, um, the mortgage rates and the mortgages in, the middle of this year. So that can be a real headwind for the Australian consumer. Um, Australia has a lot going for it on the big picture long term, but this year has been tough with the rising rates and that mortgage dynamic. So I am very underweight Australian banks, for example, which is really the probably the place that's hit the most. And big picture, that puts me underweight Australia in general. Um, just flesh out the story. So you know, a couple of years ago, when when we knew that interest rates were going to rise in Canada, the U.S., all, all around the world, there was a lot of, oh, well, the financials would be the beneficiaries of rising rates. Um, that didn't totally work out in a lot of different areas. Why is it different in Japan? I think just because Japan had no rates for so long, the financials were really bombed out. Nobody wanted to own a Japanese bank. Um, you know, you would it, it just wasn't the place to be. So they were super cheap, um, you know, sort of at the bottom. Uh, and and so there was room to move. And that's sometimes half the battle. If financials globally were expensive or if financials globally did not have as big of an effect from the rising rates and, and all the financials are they have different dynamics. Um, sure. They could have different loan to deposit ratios. They could have different, you know, in the U.S. you had SVB and in Europe you had AT1s. Um, you know, there were a lot of different things that have been happening in, in the global financial sector that have not necessarily been happening in Japan. So okay. all of that, all of that has effect on where people find value and in financials. Um, Japan didn't have a lot of that. And so it, it wasn't as affected and, and you're coming off a really low base. So that's fascinating how, yeah, the story can differ as you, as you well say, so, um, it, this is the demographic question and it's always a, a fascinating one. So thoughts on demographic trends in the region and impacts, uh, on various economies within it. Demographics have been coming up more and more. Um, you are starting to see more aging populations across the region. One notable exception has been India. Um, and part of the reason why the Indian market has been so interesting um, is that it does have that demographic story. Um, places like Japan obviously has had an aging population for a while. They are working on getting more labor force, on loosening some visa requirements. 
um, they have been working on the plan for their aging demographics for a while. Um, so just across the region, on average, we will see some effect from demographics, but I think countries and companies are endlessly capable of changing and managing that. Um, there's, there's different ways to do that. So it, it, it certainly affects, uh, affects the region, but we can also manage to it, um, it, in places that, you know, we, we don't own everything in Asia. We own, you know, 40 companies. Um, and so we can avoid places that have detrimental effects from certain things, whether it be demographics or debt or, or whatever. So, um, it's the nice thing about being flexible. Uh, we just, we go where, um, the pro, our pro, my process takes us basically. Do you want to just break down the process? I think we've spoken to you about this before, but just, just sort of if you had to encapsulate it in a couple of sentences. Sure. Um, I am generally, uh, skewed towards growth. I am not a quote momentum investor, although I do have momentum in all of the funds that I manage. Um, I look for things that have positive earnings growth or positive earnings revisions at a very, what I would consider a good price. I use a price to book metric, um, that correlates to a profitability metric, um, and really look, look for things that are improving. You know, I, as I tell all our analysts, I'm, I'm looking for things up, up and to the right that maybe not on the, your screen, <laughs> maybe it's up and to the left. Um, yeah. but that's my, um, you know, I, I want things that are growing and, and sometimes, you know, most recently, the past few years, what we've been, what I've been looking at are cyclicals. And these are things that are really Japanese banks. They came down a lot and they were coming down for a very long time. Um, but you start to see that earnings improve. And that's where the flexibility comes in. I'm not looking for one thing or another in terms of anything, really. It's it's when these things improve or when they continue to go in the right direction um, in terms of earnings at a good valuation. That's where I'm that's what I'm looking for. Will India play a greater role in this portfolio going forward? Some will say India is really expensive right now. What do you think? I think India has been a really core part of the portfolio. It has not been the biggest part. Um, I have owned different things over time. The companies that I have owned, um, I feel have been really good performers within the context of India. Um, I do wish, you know, we've talked about this so many times, maybe I'd owned a little bit more of India. Um, but uh, there are also stocks in India that have gone down. And so, you know, you have, you have to also be in the right place. You can't, and uh, we're not buying the whole market. So, um, you know, I really do try to pick my points, find those companies that I'm really interested in. And, and there are, as with any country, there are risks around certain companies, there are risks around certain factors. Um, and sometimes that will keep me out of things as well. So the overall portfolio structure, um, that comes in Asia Star or comes in the Japan Fund is a collection and an amalgamation of all these things, risk, growth, um, themes, you know, it, it, currencies, it, it, it all goes in there. So if I find things that look interesting in India, then that's where we go. If I think, find things other places, that's where we go. So Eileen, that's thank the general. You. 
very, very much for, for going through your process and really taking us on a bit of a, a tour around the region and what, where you think some of the opportunities lie. I appreciate your time very much today. Thank you, Pamela. Thanks for listening to the Fidelity Connects podcast. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to Fidelity Connects on your podcast platform of choice. And if you like what you're hearing, leave a review or a five-star rating. Fidelity Mutual Funds and ETFs are available by working with a financial advisor or through an online brokerage account. Visit fidelity.ca slash howtobuy for more information. While visiting fidelity.ca, you can also find information on future live webcasts. And don't forget to follow Fidelity Canada on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thanks again. See you next time. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of Fidelity Investments Canada, ULC, or its affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be construed as investment, tax, or legal advice. It is not an offer to sell or buy or endorsement, recommendation, or sponsorship of any entity or security cited. Read a fund's prospectus before investing. Funds are not guaranteed. Their values change frequently and past performance may not be repeated. Fees, expenses, and commissions are all associated with fund investments.